Who has the ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable in times of crisis? Well, the simple answer is everyone in society. You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Christy, podcast producer at the Oxford Human Rights Hub, and in collaboration with Shreya Artray, Associate Professor in International Human Rights Law at the University of Oxford, we're putting together a special four-part series on equality law in times of crisis. In episode three, we asked how we could reform equality law so it can better respond to exponential inequalities during crises. At the end of that episode, we realised there was a bigger question that needed to be answered, which we haven't addressed head on yet. That question is, who is ultimately responsible for protecting the most vulnerable, making sure no one falls through the gaps? In this fourth and final episode, we'll be asking our human rights experts to directly answer this question. Who do you think has the ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable in times of crisis? That's one of our assistant producers, Monica Rangolaya, asking Colm O'Kaneda, Professor of Constitutional and Human Rights Law at University College London, our million-dollar question. Throughout this episode, you'll be hearing Monica and other assistant producers, Gary Pillay and Natasha Holcroft-Emmis, pose this question time and time again. Here's what Colm says in response to Monica. Listen up, because his answer will shape how we tell this entire episode. Who has the ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable in times of crisis? Well, the simple answer is everyone in society. The, the more complicated answer is, um, look, I mean, our democratic structures have to be the primary vehicle for protecting the most vulnerable. And courts play an important part, important role in that regard. But it is important to remember, I think, that we cannot rely on courts and lawyers alone to be the primary actors in this regard. Um, There have been very significant gains achieved when it comes to equality over the last 30, 40 years. Many of those gains have been generated by courts and lawyers. Many more have been generated by social movements, by activists, by background changes to social and political culture, by the quiet activism of many individuals in many, many, many contexts, and by legislators introducing often quite good legislation, by policymakers doing their best to try and get to grips with inequality in an increasingly stratified capitalistic economy. So the question becomes how to design discrimination law and how to design our institutional structures at both local level and national level and regional level and international level, how to design our laws and our institutional structures in ways that um, amplify social and political trends, helping us achieve greater equality. That's the key question. We're going to take some of the range of actors Colin mentions one by one and assess their level of accountability. We'll be looking at the individual, public bodies, policymakers, as well as private actors, civil societies and the media. 
In doing so, we'll be going right to the heart of this series and trying to find where the buck stops and, importantly, with whom. The individual. My name is Jessica Clark, and I'm a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. Ultimately, there needs to be collective responsibility for this at every level of government, state, local, and federal, and also uh, shared responsibility between the public and private sectors. That's who should have responsibility for protecting the vulnerable in times of crisis. But unfortunately, what we see too often in the U.S. is the view that individuals are responsible for managing their own risks and for helping themselves uh, through their own um, initiative, and, and that has the predictable effect of compounding patterns of inequality. What Jessica says about moving away from individual responsibility reminds me of Beth Gaze's comment in episode three about moving, and I quote, beyond the individualised focus of anti-discrimination law. Colm O'Kaneda also says something similar, and he really drives home the importance of why it could be beneficial to move away from this individualised approach. At the moment, our discrimination law systems very much rely on the brave individual litigant coming forward to challenge discrimination, finding a good lawyer who will bring the case, um, a lawyer with sufficient expertise in what's a complicated area of law, um, and then having that litigant and their heroic crusading lawyer bring the case forward, um, fighting a court battle, um, being willing to accept the emotional burden of such litigation, and the and perhaps the social fame media controversy that can accompany such litigation. That in, that that asks a lot. It asks a lot of litigants. It asks a lot of their lawyers. Um, and I think over the years we have seen that this, that the individual enforcement model does generate some important results. I think as a society, in, in important ways, we are uh, we discriminate less than we used to do thirty or forty years ago. And individual litigants bringing discrimination claims has been an important part of that. But we also need to recognise that big gaps exist in when it comes to enforcement of anti-discrimination law. So while individuals can still have great impact, the responsibility should not ultimately fall to them to protect themselves. Public bodies. My name is Aparna Chandra. I'm an associate professor at the National Law School of India University in Bangalore. Who do you think that has the ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable in times of crisis? The ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable in times of crisis is, of course, with the political branches of the state. But that doesn't mean that the judiciary does not have a shared responsibility uh, in this respect. Um, you know, in the US, um, in the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton had very famously said uh, that the judiciary is the least dangerous branch uh, because it neither has the purse uh, nor the sword, uh, neither neither force nor will, only judgment uh, is, is what Alexander Hamilton said. And of course, we've seen since this was written that the idea of the judiciary as the least dangerous branch has been challenged in part because the power of judgment itself is very important. And that is, it's that power of judgment that 
that I think uh, is at the center of what the court can bring to times of crisis in uh, ensuring that the state accounts for the needs um, of the most vulnerable in how it uh, frames its response to the crisis. So I would say that while the ultimate responsibility is that of the state, that is of the executive and the legislature, the judiciary has a very important role to play in ensuring that in performing their ultimate role and responsibility, the needs of the most vulnerable are accounted for by the political branches. Once again, I'm reminded of episode three, where we spoke in detail about how the courts can help to keep the government in check. But while the courts might have this responsibility, the government can't shy away from its responsibilities either. All branches of government have a responsibility for upholding the commitment to equality so that in a time of crisis, the vulnerable are protected and the crisis does not deepen inequalities. Megan Campbell, reader in international human rights law at the University of Birmingham and deputy director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The moment of crisis should also be seen as a moment of reflection and transformation to have the humility to really rethink laws, policies and programs that resulted in the oppression of these groups before the crisis and to use the crisis as that um, crossroads moment to to change things for the better. Megan goes on to reflect on the ways that we have historically carved up responsibility for different sorts of inequality in the UK, and perhaps more broadly, and how this can ultimately be damaging. This is a really interesting point about history and about the way responsibility today can be so influenced by the way we've always done things or the way that we've always thought about how certain inequalities should be addressed and by whom. Dividing accountability for inequality, status in the courts, poverty in politics, starts to make very little sense when we understand how status and economic inequalities are mutually reinforcing. It also means that if we only have accountability for economic inequalities within the political realm, that the right to equality for women in poverty becomes an illusion, as they are repeatedly told that the inequalities they experience are up to often hostile political majorities to solve. Courts need to be involved in upholding the right to equality for all people, including people who live in poverty, if the right to equality is not only to become a right for the wealthy. So... Governments must remember their responsibilities to the most vulnerable. Courts must keep them in check. And we must try and avoid getting bogged down in historical divisions of accountability. Policymakers. To what extent does the responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable during times of crisis lie with those designing social security policies? So I think there is a... a, a a serious extent to which the responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable, particularly during times of crisis, lies with those who are kind of designing social security policies. This is Aaron Reeves, Associate Professor at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. Those designing those policies need to think really hard uh, now before the crises come. And that's because the policies that get made are what I call ideationally embedded. 
that is that they are embedded in ways of thinking about the world that make certain kinds of policy decisions in more intelligible or more acceptable. And so what I think the last decade or so has revealed is that it's not just about the policies that get made, it's about the ways we think about the groups affected by those policies that really plays a really powerful role in shaping the way in which we implement social security policy. This is a throwback to episode two, when we talked about how equality law legislation and policies can't be severed from the society in which they're created, and therefore from the assumptions that that society might make about a specific group of people. In that sense, Aaron argues, responsibility is about being alert and reactive to these assumptions. This kind of backs up what Megan was saying as well about the assumptions we've made historically regarding different sorts of inequalities and maybe therefore different sorts of people. So there is this other dimension, I think, to accountability and responsibility, which is for thinking about and theorising what exactly are the assumptions which underpin this policy? How are we expecting it to play out in the lives of those affected? And sometimes that type of thinking needs to be challenged so that we have the right kinds of theories that, that will shape our policies now so that when those crisis moments hit, the institutions will be flexible and appropriate to responding to those crises. Policymaking therefore seems to have a key responsibility in foreseeing how the rights of the most vulnerable might be compromised. Private actors. I'm Marca Machado. I'm a professor at Getulio Vargas Foundation Law School in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Are you aware of any examples where private actors have needed to step in to help people assert their rights? in a time of crisis or otherwise. Yeah, that, that was very interesting because uh, we had a, a strong problem in, in, in the field of domestic uh, violence. Uh, it was clear that women uh, had, uh, had trouble and difficulties to get help and to denounce the aggressors. Uh, and uh, the official institutions, uh, they took a time to react to that uh, situation. And we had one example in Brazil of an, one interesting example in Brazil was this uh, initiative of a department store that created like an emergency button on the website uh, so that the women would pretend they were buying something. And in fact, they were uh, trying to call for help and that would connect with the, the official hotline for, for domestic abuse. Do you think it's a failure of the state if vulnerable people are driven to rely on private actors in this way to seek help regarding domestic abuse? Yeah, that's that's certainly a problem that uh, public policies were not working uh, to a point that uh, women were in really in situation of risk. Uh, and that that was dramatic. I think, of, of course, any uh initiative and uh and uh, it's it's very important to the cause and to anti-discrimination uh policies that we have private actors also enforcing anti-racist anti-discrimination uh policies and initiatives and uh, but of course that cannot uh replace public policies private actors can therefore be useful for setting precedents or trialing approaches even if they shouldn't have to fill gaps left by public bodies. 
Alita Sprague, who we heard from earlier, agrees with reference to the US context. Alita, remember, is Senior Legal Analyst at the World Policy Analysis Centre. That actually brings me really well to my last question, which is on the role of private actors. So my question is, um, what role do you think private actors can have in protecting the vulnerable during crisis situations? I think the short answer would be that they can lead by example. Um, so here in the U.S., I've, I've highlighted the issue of sick leave and how without a national policy, there are huge gaps in who has access to paid sick leave and that those gaps really fall along racial lines and socioeconomic lines. Um, at the same time, during the pandemic, there were employers who stepped up to fill those gaps and it matters. Uh, there was actually a, a study already published in Health Affairs, one of the, the major public health journals here, about the impact of one of these employer-initiated changes. Um, it was a, a restaurant chain, uh, Olive Garden, that newly began offering paid sick leave during the pandemic even that was exempt from uh, the temporary emergency sick leave law that, that Congress passed. So they did not have to do this, but they elected to. And it resulted in about um, a 15 percentage point reduction in the share of workers who reported going to work while sick in the preceding month during the fall of 2020, according to this analysis. So the decision to begin providing leave likely prevented a significant number of COVID infections and set an example for the service industry, which is one industry in which uh, workers in the U.S. definitely have fewer social protections than, than many others. At the same time, um, even though examples like this are encouraging, I think we, we can't let the public sector off the hook. So private actors can have a positive impact, but shouldn't be relied upon to provide the nets for those potentially falling through the gaps. Partly because, as we've heard, it is their choice, not their obligation, to do so. Civil societies and the media. Civil society organisations and the media have also played important roles. And in the absence of a democratically representative government, Civil society groups and the media have been able to diagnose problems and bring them to the attention of policymakers. And sometimes this has been successful. And at the very least, it has raised public awareness of what's happening. Kelly Loper, Associate Professor and Director of the Human Rights Programme at the University of Hong Kong. During the most recent wave of Omicron infections in Hong Kong, there have been a number of issues related to the treatment of migrant domestic workers by their employers. So migrant domestic workers in Hong Kong, who are mainly from Indonesia and the Philippines, as well as a few other countries, and mainly women, um, are required to live in their employers' homes while they're in Hong Kong working on a two-year contract. And the media and migrant workers' organizations have actually reported that a number of these women were fired by their employers for contracting COVID, or they were forced to move out of their employers' homes and sleep on the streets. Um, and advocacy groups, as a result, and as a result of a public outcry because of the media reports about these, these issues, that advocacy groups have pushed for better guidelines for employers. Um, and have actually so far prompted some positive responses by senior government officials. So I think that you know, this 
interaction between civil society organizations, the media and the government is something that really has been a very important characteristic of civil society in Hong Kong and has been behind a lot of the, if limited, the, the somewhat progressive changes, including the introduction of anti-discrimination legislation and some of the strategic litigation that we've seen on equality issues that have come before the courts. Civil societies and the media, important for raising awareness and pushing for reform, but not ultimately accountable. So perhaps no surprise that it hasn't been simple to effectively isolate one institution that has ultimate responsibility for protecting the most vulnerable. Governments, courts and policymakers have intersecting responsibilities, while private actors, civil societies and the media, we could perhaps say, have a duty to shine a light on where these responsibilities are not being met and to pave a path forwards if they can. However, as courts are required to keep the government and policymakers in check, it does seem that courts are the metaphorical canopy we were looking for to catch those falling through the gaps between institutional provisions. If you told us this at the beginning of the series, I don't think we would have been surprised. And you might ask, if we could have guessed that at the beginning, well, what was the point of making this series in the first place? Well, what this series has underlined more than ever is that our institutions exist within a delicate, intersecting network, much like inequalities themselves intersect. We've learned that inequalities not only intersect, but they often compound during crises. We've learned that equality law, legislations and policies regularly fall short in times of crisis and outside of them. And we've heard about some of the possibilities for impactful change. But most of all, We've learned... Well, let me leave this final observation to Shreya Artre, Associate Professor in International Human Rights Law at the University of Oxford and the coordinator of this Exponential Inequalities Research Project. But, but the key for, for exponential inequalities, what we call, is really to address them before they arise. And this seems to come through in, in several of, our, of, of, of the chapters which have been contributed to this project. And I think this is the take home message we would hope that we can work towards, not just in times of crisis, but perhaps before crises and during the crisis. So it's not when crises really are triggered, but, but really to put in place practices which are, ve- which are well underway when something such as the pandemic occurs. Perfect. Thank you, Shreya. I think that's all of the questions that I had. Perfect. We got this. If you've enjoyed this series, please look out for our upcoming book where all these ideas and more are presented in further depth. The book, entitled Exponential Inequalities, Equality Law in Times of Crisis, is co-edited by Shreya Artre and Sandra Fredman and will be published by Oxford University Press later in 2022. 
The producer and presenter was me, Christy Calloway-Gale. Assistant producers Monica Arango-Alaya, Gary Pillay and Natasha Holcroft-Emmis. Transcripts were produced by Sarah Dobby and with music by Rosemary Orman. Thanks to Megan Campbell and Sandra Fredman for their generous feedback and guidance.